Okay, um, let's uh, start with um, prayer and ask the Lord's guidance. Father, we ask that you take this time. We thank you that you are here and that you care about the details of our lives and that you care that we know you. I ask that you open our hearts and our minds uh, today to see you afresh, to see you in new ways. Help us to seek uh, you out and to seek to follow you and thus let you change our lives and hopefully through us change the lives of others. Uh, apply the truth today uniquely to where each of us is. Uh, let it speak deeply to our spirits and our hearts today. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. As you know, we're looking at Christ the Revolutionary. And um, last week, we, um, we looked at uh, his focus, that his focus determined what he saw. And uh, I'm just wondering, since last week, uh, what are you seeing out there and who are you seeing? Uh, has that changed a little bit for you uh, this week as you consider the things that Christ, uh, that mattered to Christ last week? Um, we looked at the, the treasure hidden in the field, that the kingdom of God is this treasure hidden in the field, that the spirit realm is a hidden realm, and, uh, and, and that God's kingdom has clandestinely crept its way into this fallen world and establishes itself in the hidden places of a believer. And so then a light comes on in the darkness when someone believes and follows him. And so we are sort of, we're sort of like those pictures you get from space now of the earth at night. And, and you see, uh, you know, almost the outlines of nations because so many uh, cities are in, um, and so much of civilization exists around the sea, the sea lines or the seashores. And so you see all these lights in the darkness. And that's sort of how we, God's kingdom looks from a distance, if you will. Uh, he has planted his kingdom in the hidden places of our heart. And a light comes on in the night, in the darkness. And so it just scatters the darkness with his outpost of light. And so we looked uh, last week at this hiddenness and, and how it affected what Jesus saw, what he looked for. And so I'm wondering if any of you have, if this has kind of resonated this week with any of you, uh, and a lot that were here last week are not here today, but um, are you thinking differently or, or uh, more about what you see and whom you see and, and why? Is that resonating yet in how you're walking? Yes.
Well, and that goes to the hidden. It, you know, we look for the external evidence and the external manifestation. And what he is really after uh, uh, with us is for us to walk not by sight, but by faith in him. And not have to seek the signs. The signs uh, are helpful and they're nice. Hi, Jane. Um, but the, the hidden kingdom of faith is what makes up the difference between what we can see and what we hope for. Uh, what we can see and what God has in mind. And so I want us to look today at, at some of the things Christ saw once we understand that his whole focus was on this interior invisible realm, the realm of the spirit. He is about taking you and me from our soulish realm down into our spirit uh, life, our spirit. Uh, most of our knee-jerk reactions to things come right out of the soul, that place that carries the mind, the will, the emotions, and, and the responses to our perceptions of this world. And he was about countering that. And so I want us to... I want us to consider, um, just in, in a little bit of a review, how he saw things differently. And we looked at uh, Zacchaeus, and we looked, we've looked at the rich young ruler. And in both cases, Christ looked at the treasures hidden in the field. He looked at the condition of the heart. Uh, and, and where the heart's treasures were. Uh, we're not going to go back uh, to look in Luke 19 at Zacchaeus because we've done that before. Uh, but here's this man that no one liked. Here's this man that was considered a traitor, uh, a thief. He, he, he stole from people in a sense through the uh, added taxes, the added things that he exacted from the people above and beyond the legitimate taxes they were to pay. And yet in this man, Christ saw something that no one else saw. In the rich young ruler, young, wealthy, probably very appealing young man, Zacchaeus, wealthy at the expense of the, the Jews, short, you know, no one liked him, and yet Christ went to eat with him at his house. He didn't even stop by the local Starbucks just to eat there. He, he, put, he went to his house, which was a statement of identification. He identified with something in Zacchaeus that needed to be touched. With rich young ruler, he saw in his heart the one thing that was lacking. And he went there. And the rich young ruler, as you know, turned sadly away because he had many possessions. So Christ the revolutionary came to turn the known world inside out, not just upside down. 
And uh, we see over here, as, a, as another picture of that, turn to Luke 18. And let's look at uh, some of these revolutionary um, minefields that he set up for people. In uh, Luke 18, we'll start with verse 9. Uh, he spoke this parable unto certain men which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Perhaps we could say judged others. Uh, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed uh, thus uh, with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not, uh, as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. You see, he was rightly judging, and that's in quotes, rightly, judging the inappropriate actions and behaviors of these people. He was saying these people's behaviors are inappropriate. And they were. Adulterers. Um, extortioners. Unjust. Oh, he's hitting a pretty okay list. Glad I'm not like them. You know, I may have my faults, but I'm sure not like them. I'm not even as this publican over here that's standing not too far away, trying to pray. Because clearly he doesn't have his act together. You know, we, we, we give um, the Pharisees a uniquely bad rap. But sometimes we're dangerously close uh, to them. I mean, this guy was looking at their behavior. And you know, how often do we do that? We look at people's behavior and we judge them. So, and he, then he starts telling the Lord how righteous he is and what he does to prove it. You know, I fast twice in the week and give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing over there would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven. But he smote his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, this humble man who could not even lift up his eyes to heaven, went to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. And elsewhere, he essentially says, if we exalt ourselves, that is our reward. We've given ourselves our blessing. We've given ourselves our reward. So here Christ is giving a parable that goes against the current. It goes against the mindset of the people of his time. The Pharisees were publicly righteous. They said the right words. And they had their act together in terms of performance. They could check everything off their list. So people considered them righteous. And Christ is saying, no, that is not the righteousness of the hidden kingdom. That is not what I look for. What I look for is this man over here that understands his brokenness. That understands how far short he falls. And is humbled by that. 
So he's introducing into the mindset of the people a key to the kingdom, humility. In Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, he says, unless you, want, you, you become as one of these little children and humble yourself, you cannot enter into the kingdom. That's why I call humility a key to the kingdom. You know, in Matthew 16, 19, I mean, not quite 19, uh, probably 7, no, 16, 19. He tells Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then Peter, very shortly after that, goes into this utter time of breaking where he had just said, Lord, I'll go to the death with you, uh, for you. And he took out his sword in Gethsemane, cut off the ear of the soldier in this, this uh, response that came right out of who Peter was. Peter was strong. Peter was bold. Peter was courageous. And Christ had just said there in the, uh, the region of Caesarea Philippi, he said, Peter, upon you, upon your faith, this kind of faith, I will build my church. He had singled Peter out, and there he had called him the rock. And so Peter was on the way up in the spiritual ladder. He had just been affirmed by the president of the company, the company of 12 but the king of the universe. So, I mean, you can't get any better than that. He had, he had singled Peter out and said, you're the man. And then just short days later, short moments later, after he had cut off the ear of the soldier, he comes crashing in on his humanity and on the limitations of the love that he had for Christ. And he denies him and then goes out into the night, weeping bitterly, separates himself out from the disciples. He's a broken man. And then on the Sea of Galilee in, in John 21, we see he, he has lost his dreams. He has gone back to the only thing he knew, his nets that he'd left three years ago three years earlier. He said, I'm going fishing. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I'm going fishing. And the rest of the guys said, we are too. They had lost their dreams, even though they knew that there was evidence that Christ was appearing, but they didn't understand what that meant. Appearing to them and, and giving some instructions to some of them, they still didn't have this all figured out. And they are, they are, broken and they go fishing and there it is that Christ restores to Peter what he had lost three days earlier or a few days earlier why was that because the key of humility had not yet been fully formed in Peter he had to come to grips with the limitations of his own strengths his greatest strength ultimately would become his greatest spiritual hindrance to the Lord establishing 
his, his, his uh, church, not upon Peter himself, but upon the kind of faith Peter had. Peter had to know that it was not through his strength that Christ would move, but through his weakness. And so humility was the key that was not yet fully formed uh, for Peter. That's revolutionary. You and I look for our greatest strengths, and that is what is going to propel us through life. You and I look for what our native giftedness is, and that's what we use. Our talents, that's what we use to determine our course, to determine our careers, to determine our whatever those interests are that establish us. And this hidden kingdom operates from the opposite end of that tunnel. It comes from humility and from this strange truth that when I am weak, he is strong and his strength is perfected, made whole, completed in my weakness. That is a revolution we don't understand. But it is a revolution that Christ not only initiated, but he invites us to. He invites us to. To understand that it is not in our strength that his kingdom come and his will be done. It is in our weakness because it, the majesty and the mighty of his work is his work through us, not us doing his work for him. So this is part of what he's pointing out here, that this man who has humbled himself and cannot even lift his eyes to heaven is the one that is righteous. Let's look at some others. Um, turn to um, Luke 13. Uh, in, in verse 10, he was teaching in the synagogue, synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was this woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years, and she was bowed over, walking about half her size. You can imagine that people probably didn't associate very much with her because she just didn't look like everybody else. And it was on the Sabbath, and Jesus initiated with her. She didn't even ask him anything. She didn't even initiate. Christ did on the Sabbath, which was considered work by the Pharisees, whose face he was deliberately in at this point. Um, he said, woman, you are loosed. You are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now, there are several uh, nuances going on here. One is that he was wanting to make a point to the Pharisees about the Sabbath. Uh, that man was not made for the Sabbath to serve it legalistically. The Sabbath was made for man, to give man rest, to serve man, to minister to man. So what he's doing is he's turning the legalistic uh, kingdom on its ear. 
He's saying, you have to understand the spirit of this. But the other thing was, this woman mattered to him. This woman who no one else probably really associated with very much. I mean, I'm reading between the lines here. And maybe off a little bit, but probably not by very much if I'm off any. And he loosed her. So he set her free. And that goes to Luke 4, 18, where he said, I have come to set at liberty those that are bruised. In Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Christ came to us as a liberator, came to earth as a liberator, to set people free from bondage. To set people free from physical bondage, but much more significantly, from soulish bondage, from religious bondage, and from spiritual bondage. He loosed that woman physically. But in doing that, I think he set her free emotionally and spiritually because she glorified God. There are other examples uh, that we can look at um, here. Turn to uh, Luke 12. Because as I said earlier, he is taking people down uh, from a soulish response system to a response in the spirit. And this brings to light an understanding, I think, of the scripture in Hebrews 4.12 where it says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it is good for dividing asunder, what? Soul and spirit. Isn't that an interesting thing? When I first started really looking at that scripture many years ago and thinking, what is the difference between soul and spirit? Aren't they the same? And no, they're not. I mean, they're kind of intricately entwined with each other, but they're not the same. The Pharisees approached God from a soulish realm. Religion operates mostly from a soulish realm. Ritual operates mostly from a soulish realm. From performance, from looking at the rules and the do's and the don'ts and the behavioral systems and and getting that right. And I would say probably 95% of us especially if we've, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior at a young age, we tend to operate for a long period of time in our life from the soulish realm toward God. And from our soulish realm toward each other, this is in, it's in our soulish realm that we make religious judgments. It's in the soulish realm that the people that we've read about, this Pharisee who was praying, was making his judgments about how righteous he was. And Christ said in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter into my kingdom. The reason for that is his kingdom is spiritual. It's not soulish, but it is designed 
for the spirit to possess the soul, <clears throat> to subdue the soul. Where he says in, in Luke uh, 21, I believe it's verse 19. I always get it switched. I'm dyslexic at that scripture. It's either 1921 or 2119. Uh, in your patience, possess ye your souls. The spirit lies down deeper. In that deep hub of who we are is our spirit. And the idea is that the spirit would be released in us by our obediences, our love for him, our responses to him, so that our soulish wild Mustang, our, our soul is the wild horse here that has been untamed. And it's up to the spirit in us to tame the soul, to possess it, so that our responses come filtered through the spiritual lens and not a soulish lens. Because the confrontations that we are reading about here today are Christ hitting that lens that soulish lens, and saying to the Pharisees, this will not do. Saying to the people who looked up to the Pharisees as the most righteous in all the land because they had it all together. They knew the law. They even created some laws. And they were obviously pious because they were praying on the street corners. They were seen by everybody as righteous, and Christ is coming in, and he is saying, no. My revolution does not look like that, nor do my people look like that. If the revolution is to continue, he must have people who do not look like that. So let's look here at uh, Luke 12. Get, make sure I'm on the right chapter here. Verse 13, starting there with verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide his inheritance with me. That seems a reasonable request, sort of. Certainly a soulish request. We need to get this fair. We need you to help us out here. You're the referee. And Jesus said, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Not necessarily a lambish response there, perhaps a lion. Take heed, he said, in verse 15, unto them, and beware of covetousness. See, he goes to the heart of the matter. Christ always went down below the surface, below the rabbits that we all chase, below the rabbits that we all send out when we're, when we're dealing with the symptoms, with the surface issues with the facts often. The facts often come from the soulish realm. There's a difference between facts and truth. The facts were there was a, there was a problem here with the inheritance. They were in dispute. They needed, they needed a, uh, what's that? Uh, yes, arbitrator, arbiter. Um, Someone to settle the, the conflict. And Christ says, take heed, beware of covetousness. Covetousness was the issue, not, not the division, but the condition of his heart and maybe his, his relative's heart. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Verse 
again, he is, he is switching and turning uh, the landscape and insisting that people not relate to him or to each other based upon a set of rules. Based upon as much on fairness as upon the condition of the heart. So the hidden kingdom that Christ looks at and the, are the treasures that are hidden there go to the condition of our heart. We can look okay, but that's not what this revolution that he began 2,000 years ago is about. Let's look at a few more things, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. Um, you know, we've hit Luke 7.36 before, but I guess we'll go there, and then I want to go on to one that we haven't hit before. And 7.36 is, uh, we probably hit it even really uh, somewhat last week, but... Um, one of the Pharisees had desired that Christ would eat with him. Pharisee. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And this woman, who had a bad reputation in town, was most likely a prostitute. And this is in verses 36 through 39. Came and broke the alabaster box and, and poured this expensive ointment over him. And the Pharisee knew who she was. Is that the heat that's back on again? <laughs> I am burning up and we have it off. <laughs> how's, that how's that possible? Thank you, Leanne, for seeing if we can figure this out. Um, you might just turn the temperature down to about 65 and see if that... Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, so in verse um, 44, uh, not 44... Um, the, uh, in verse um, 39, his thoughts were, this man, the middle of verse 39, if he were a prophet would have known what kind of woman this is and who it is that touches him because she's defiling him. And Christ went to the condition of her heart. That she has loved much, and though she has many sins, much is forgiven because she's loved much. Performance has its place, but if it is not gushing forth from a deeper artesian well of our love for the Lord and our desire to please him, then performance doesn't have, it's sort of a hollow base. Performance as an expression of what my heart wants is the deal. He gets into this big time in uh, Luke 11. And this is where we see not the lamb but the lion. Uh, start with verse 37 here.
And here, here are the Pharisees coming from this soulish perspective. Up on the surface perspective, the soul is what comes in contact with the world. The soul is what perceives the things from the world. The soul is what contains our five sensory, uh, I mean, our, our body contains our five senses, but our soul interprets our mind, our will, uh, our, our emotions interpret what our senses perceive and then dictate sort of our behaviors based upon what we're seeing or hearing or feeling. Um, so here we see uh, this occurring here in verse 37. And he spoke, uh, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee besought him uh, to come dine with him. And he went and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee uh, saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Here's the rules. <laughs> and the Lord said unto him, uh, Now do you Pharisees make the outside of the cup clean and the platter but your inward part is full of 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 wickedness king james says ravening um, anger railing so he immediately takes this and says you are talking about the outside you get that clean you make sure that's clean you fools verse 40 did you um, did not he that made that which is on the outside make that which is within also. But rather give alms of such things as you have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and you pass over judgment and the love of God. You miss that. You miss the love of God. You just go right over it. You go right over this righteous judgment because you just, you're just inspecting the outside of everything. These ought you to have done, but not to leave the other undone. It's, so it's good to have the outside clean. It's good that our behaviors are right, but they need to be coming from what's on the inside. Is what he's saying here. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for, and I mean, he is, he is tearing into them. This is the revolutionary. He is not cowed by church leaders. He is not deterred by what people will think of him. He is only governed by what the Lord, his Father, wants. That's his only consideration. So he tears into the church leaders. That'd be like you in the face of Steve Stroop. In public, not in private, and expecting to get away with it. <laughs> he, it didn't matter because he had a greater church leader of the true church that he was establishing. And his father was directing his path here. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, you love all the attention, the spotlight, all the acclaim, which we all do. We love the applause. That encourages those limping places in us, but it also can encourage our pridefulness. We need to have 
affirmations. The woman bent over needed affirmation. She was not seeking it herself, she was needing it. But these Pharisees sought it, set it up, worked the system so that they got it. That's what he's coming against. Woe unto you, verse 44, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are as graves which people don't see. And the men that walk over them are not aware of the graves. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, and you're talking this way, you reproach us all. You're, you're, you're indicting all of us. You're correcting all of us. And he said unto them, Woe unto you also, you lawyers. Not just the church leaders, but the lawyers too, because you put... You laid burdens upon people. You laid mankind with burdens. Grievous to be born, but you don't enter into those burdens yourself. You don't touch them. You're removed from what you require of people. You're removed from what you place upon people. You do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Remember in Galatians 6, Paul talks about the law of Christ. I think it's in verse 2 of Galatians 6. Do you remember what that law of Christ is? That we bear one another's burdens. That we bear one another's burdens. The law of Christ is that you and I enter into the burdens of others. That we don't remove ourselves from it. We enter into the sharing of the cross that others have to bear of their pain and their woundedness, and we invest ourselves in their lives. The law of Christ is that we bear burdens, not remove ourselves from them. That's the opposite of the law of Christ. This part of completing the sufferings of Christ that Paul strangely speaks of in Colossians 1.24. How do you complete the sufferings of Christ? Were they not finished at the cross? He finished his work, but the suffering of Christ continues in the lives of those people who suffer wrongfully, who suffer alone, who suffer without glory and honor. And as you and I come and walk alongside them, walk with them, and they're not going to be the pretty people. You see, this is the lesson of this lesson. The people that he calls you and me to are not going to be the ones who look really good. You know, how many times are we drawn toward celebrity? Are we drawn toward power, toward prominence, toward position? toward popularity and those who, who have that and we want to be near them. We're drawn to them by their charisma. But if we would fulfill the law of Christ and bear one another's burdens, it will be to those who have no one else to walk alongside them. 
it won't be, it, it, you know, I, I'm sure the Pharisees had burdens. They just didn't know about it because they had their world so c controlled and perfected. And Christ said, I came not for the ones who are whole and healthy, but for those who are sick. Didn't mean that there's any out here on this planet that are whole and healthy. There's not one. But he couldn't reach those who did not know they were sick. He could not reach those who did not know they were crippled and limping. So he couldn't come to the Pharisees because the Pharisees had not a clue. But he could come to the woman bent over. He could come to the small man who had great power but was hiding in a tree because this man had a seeking heart about who Christ really was. And the Pharisees had a confrontational heart about who they thought he was. So he calls you and me to complete his suffering. In the body of Christ, which we now are as believers, the body of Christ, we go about walking alongside those that no one else may see, that no one else may care about, or that others may not like at all. And then the great challenge for you and me is, dare I move to their side, what will other people think? How will other people see me? And that's the mindset that Christ came to upend and to ask his followers to be willing to upend that in their own lives and to be willing to upend that in public in other people's eyes. So he finishes his diatribe here against the sacred diatribe. Verse 47, Woe unto you, for you build sepulchers for the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Your fathers killed them, and you built these great things to honor them. And you, you, you didn't get the connection of how, how did they get there in the first place. Truly, you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed the prophets, and you build their sepulchers. Therefore, also said uh, the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of you. <laughs> Christ was condemning them, and it's the only group of people he condemned. And they were the ones that seemed to be the perfect religious leaders. And those are the only group that I am aware of that he condemned. He didn't condemn the adulterers and the prostitutes. He didn't, he didn't condemn uh, those who really did not measure up in their behaviors. He confronted them with their sin, but he didn't condemn them. The woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. So, the question that I have for you is, uh, this one we've chosen to receive as our Savior, he now asks you and me to make him our Lord and to follow him. And if we say verse, uh, John, uh, 1 John 1, um, 6, I think, if we say we abide, uh, 2, 6, if we say we abide in him, then we ought to walk even as he walked. 
what does this mean for you and me? As if we follow him, then we're saying yes to the revolution. Yes, I sign up. I'll be a foot soldier. Some wanted to sit on the throne with him. Christ would have none of that. If you would be first, you must be last. If you would be master, you must be servant. That's the revolution too. The paradoxes of our faith. If you would live, you must die. The, the revolution continues based upon those tenets. So who are those people in your life? I'd like for you to just uh, close your eyes for a moment and bow your heads. And ask the Lord to show you what he would have you do with this. Who those people are in your life that he would have you set free. That he would have you be a liberator for them. Those people that might not be the rich and famous, the lovely, might be a thorn in your flesh. Might be someone you've not even really paid much attention to. Take some time here for him to speak to you about what he has, would have for you to do. Father, thank you that you love the least of these. that you reach down and notice them and care for them, that you have done that with us. I ask that you prick our hearts this week regarding what we're seeing out there and whom we're seeing and open our hearts to love them come alongside and bear burdens we're not used to bearing. Help us in doing that, Father, to complete the sufferings of our Lord. I ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. I thank you that he was a burden bearer and that he was a liberator. And I ask that you show us this week how to be a liberator in the lives of those who cross our path. Help us to see ourselves as that instrument of freedom for others. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.